Samuel chapter 5. We are looking this morning at verses 1 through to 5. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore neither the priest of Dagon, nor any that come into Dagon's house, tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. The Lord mocks Philistia. This portion of scripture that we have just heard causes us to smile. It is a very humorous section in the word of God. It makes us laugh. And we can laugh because the Lord laughs in the temple of Dagon. Now the Lord doesn't do this to Dagon to prove something to himself. The Lord is just not making himself feel better as if he feels threatened by Dagon. Now what the Lord is doing this morning is he is showing to us the folly of idols, the folly of material gods, whatever form they take. So God is not making this scene of laughter because idolatry is harmless. No, he is making this a scene of humor because idolatry is utterly foolish, nonsensical. If people would only but see it, and so through humor, God would make us to see it. You remember how the second psalm says, why do the heathen rage, the people imagine a vain thing? And then the kings of the earth, they're setting themselves and the rulers are taking counsel together against the Lord, against Jehovah and against his Christ. And what are they saying? Well, they're saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And then the psalm says this, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And then he'll mock them. He'll have them in derision. And then after that, he'll speak unto them in his wrath and he'll vex them in his sore displeasure. And that's a kind of exposition of this chapter 5 in 1 Samuel. That's what is happening in this chapter. In Dagon's house, he's having the Philistines in derision. He's mocking them. And after he mocks them in the temple of Dagon, he will go out to speak to them in his wrath, and he'll vex them in his sore anger. 
We're looking at the mocking part this morning. Jehovah is making the Philistines to be derided by mocking their God. He's laughing at them. It reminds me a bit of Mount Carmel. You remember how Elijah mocked Baal as Baal's priests were trying to stir Baal up to get the fire to come down and to consume the sacrifice and Elijah mocked Baal. He said, cry aloud, shout out more. He's a God. He should be hearing you. Maybe he's talking and you have to shout out louder to interrupt him to get his ear. Or maybe he's pursuing. Or maybe he's away on the journey somewhere else. Maybe he's en route somewhere else. You have to shout louder to get his attention. Maybe he's even sleeping and you need to shout to wake him up. Mocking Baal. The folly of idols that have no reality and no substance. Baal is utterly impotent and God is showing that Dagon is too in his own temple in Ashdod. And so he's, God scoffs at them and makes sport of them. Now as we look at this portion of scripture, I want to divide the text chronologically. There's a time element here. You have the Philistines on the day one taking the ark of God and bringing it into the house of Dagon and setting it there beside Dagon. And then in verse 3 we read, they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow. That's day two, that's the next day. And he's fallen upon his face. And they set him back in his place again. And then we read in verse 4, when they arose early on the morrow morning, that's the next day again, behold he's falling again upon his face and his, some of his bodily parts have been uh, cut off. And then we read in verse 5 that the threshold where those bodily parts were lying, the priests jump over it every day thereafter in remembrance of that. So there's the day one, there's the day two, there's the day three, and then there's perpetual every other day thereafter. So the Holy Spirit is, is drawing attention to that time element, which is very important. And that's the way that we want to divide the text and to look at it this morning. Day one, first of all. We read of that in the first two verses, when the ark of God comes into unholy hands. Because what does the text here say? The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer onto Ashdod, a journey of some miles. Then verse 2, when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Do you see how the verbs are repeated here? It says twice they took the ark. They needed hands to do that. Their unholy hands are taking the ark. The hands are a very important motif in this chapter. And they're taking the ark of God and they're bringing it, they're carrying it from Ebenezer first of all, but they're carrying it and bringing it and taking it 
to Ashdod and then they bring it into the temple of Ashdod and then their unholy hands raise it and set it beside Dagon. It's painted for us very carefully with repeated verbs. This ark looks parlous in their hands. They seem to be the ones in the control room having the power over the ark of God and the crowning act of their handiwork is that it is set beside their great God, Dagon. Now these hands, remember, are unholy hands. They are hands that are uncircumcised hands. They are hands that are stained with blood, having slaughtered the people of God, cruel, bloody hands, idolatrous hands which are raised up in worship to idols, proud, arrogant hands that think God of Israel is helpless and powerless. They think that their God's hands are greater than Jehovah's hands. And so they set it beside Dagon. Now they know God has power, the God of Israel, because They said earlier on about the hand of God, what he'd done on the Egyptians. But now they think, because they have won the battle and have brought the ark into the temple of Dagon, they think that Dagon's hands are stronger and far more powerful. Dagon has delivered the Lord into their hands. So they're delighted. And they no doubt stripped the ark of the coverings. And they carried in this victory parade into the temple. Now remember what is inside this ark. This holy ark. This ark of the covenant. The two tables of stone. The law of God. God's holy law of the holy God. Perhaps the Philistines have even peeked into the ark. And seen the tablets. And read the text. But they have undoubtedly refuse to heed it and ignore it. And they proceed to very boldly break its first two commandments. Having another God before Jehovah, even their God Dagon, and making images and idols of their God and bowing down to it and worshipping it. And so they are commandment breakers, law breakers, and they are casting the Lord's cords of his holy law in the ark from them. And now God is about to sport with them, to deride them. Now the positioning here of the ark of the Lord beside Dagon symbolizes several things. It symbolizes a spirit of triumph and victory. They're skipping and leaping as they go out of the temple, happy and joyful. They are the victors of Dagon. Their God has won the day. So, so there's triumph and rejoicing. And there's humiliation because they humiliate the ark. They put it beside Dagon. It's there be- below and bind to Dagon as it were and it's in a position of servitude because they believe that Dagon will use the ark 
and that the ark will now have a new union, a new fellowship with Dagon, and Dagon will use the power that they know this ark has, that Dagon will use the power and use the God of Israel against Israel. And so they're welcoming the ark in to the new union, to the new fellowship, that together Dagon might even be mightier than before. So there's servitude here as well. There's using God, the God of Israel, for this purpose. And that's how sinners are, you know. They, they triumph over God. They humiliate the Lord. They think that they can do whatever they please. They think, and whenever things go wrong, they think they can go to God and use God and, you know, kind of, as it were, channel his power just as they please any kind of old way. Oh, how sinners treat the Lord. So it's set beside Dagon as the trophy of Dagon. And they're saying, Dagon, you've defeated and brought Israel low. Now, as I said in the past, this typifies the humiliation of Christ. It reminds us of Peter's word, in actual fact, on that, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, taken, delivered, brought, and Peter adds, by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And these wicked hands are, are utterly humiliating God's ark. But Peter went on to add, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. And this ark is the same. They've laid their wicked hands on it, they've humiliated it, but the Lord's about to awake and to rise up. And when he rises up, he's going to make all his enemies his footstool. Even as Christ, when he was raised, is at God's right hand till all his enemies are made his footstool. So Philistia may have the ark and rejoice in its defeat, but it and its God is soon going to find out that the Lord is mighty. And he's going to make them his footstool. And he's going to make them bow, broken and powerless before him. But they don't realize that yet. The Lord wants to sport with them first for a little time before he brings them down. And he begins with their God, Dagon. Now, let's think about ungodly sinners here and how they treat the Lord. And how God for a time allows them to exercise that unholy dealing with God, that unholy handling with God. The atheist does with his hands as he pleases. And he treats the things of God as he desires. And the ungodly hands of men can hurt and harm and humiliate the people of God and bring down apparently the things of God. And they can seem to destroy the word of God. And the wicked can shake their fist at God. And nothing seems to happen. Nothing seems to take place. But the Bible says that the wicked will get the reward of his hands. Eventually. So the hands of the wicked are a terror to the saints very often. And God lets them be a terror, even as they were a terror to Israel, the hands of the Philistines. 
And very often the people of God have to pray, Lord, deliver us out of their hands. The hands of the wicked. Because for a time, you see, they seem to prevail. They seem to have the power. You remember how the Lord Jesus said, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Yes, even the Lord Jesus in the hands of sinners. And many of his saints are too. And sometimes the things of God get into their hands as well. However, eventually, the Lord will always bring them low. They won't always prevail. And their vile hands will eventually ruin them and destroy them. The wicked is snared in the work of their own hands. The Philistines are going to know that. They're going to find that out. They're going to discover that. That they have become snared. In the very things that their hands have brought in. That's how God works. He lets them go. So they destroy themselves. And the wicked have to repent of that. Do you remember how the Lord said, even to God's people, if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. You have to watch what your hands do. You have to cut your members off. Better you mutilate your members than that the Lord mutilates them, as he's going to mutilate Dagon. Better that we cut our hand off and cast it from us Lest the Lord cut it off and cast it to the threshold. Better to cut off our own hands. With repentance. And to say sorry to the Lord. And to ask him to forgive us. And to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And not proudly raise our hands in arrogance against him. The best thing to do with our hands is what the publican did with his hands, beat upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, we like to point our hands at others. We like to beat on others' breasts. We like to think that others are the great sinners. But rather than pointing to others, we should beat on our own hearts. This is what God desires. This is what God looks to with grace and mercy if we with our hands beat on our own heart and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Let's not forget that psalm then that says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And who shall abide where the tabernacle abides? He that hath clean hands. And so we have to wash our hands, congregation, in the blood of Jesus Christ. David said, I have washed mine hands in innocency. So will I compass thine altar, O Lord. He knows he can't compass it with unholy hands. And so he prays for the cleansing, for the washing. Are your hands washed? Are your hands cleansed? In the Savior's blood, do you embrace him with true faith by your hands? Do you hold him with love and affection with your hands to your heart? Not like these unholy mockers of the things of God. So by having the ark beside Dagon, the Philistines believe that now Israel will never be able to stand before them. But they're going to get a big surprise. 
Just like our Lord's humiliation, it was voluntary. He soon awoke. As Psalm 78 says, Then the Lord awaked out of sleep. It's interesting how the psalm should interpret this incident in the house of Dagon as that. Everybody's gone to bed. Everybody's gone home for a night's rest. and They're going to come back to the temple in the morning. And what happens then? Day two. Verse three. When they have Ashdod arose early, they're up early the next morning, ready to come back again to praise Dagon and to worship him and to see the humiliation of the ark. So they come in and behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took him. Now they're taking Dagon. They don't have to take the ark anymore. But now they take Dagon and they set him up back up again in this place. You see, they, they went skipping and leaping from Dagon's house and clapping their hands and hoped to be coming back again like that, congratulating one another and patting one another on, a, on, on their backs as they had a good night's rest and they're coming back. But you see, while they were sleeping, the Lord awaked. The Lord wasn't sleeping. And you know what the Lord did? He gave Dagon a wee push on the back. A bit of a shove. In such a manner as he was led prostrate before the ark of the Lord. The throne of God. The, the glory that dwells, dwells between the cherubim. And Dagon on his face before the Lord. It's humorous isn't it? God's sporting with them. God's mocking them. He's playing with them and seeing how they'll respond. So he's on his face. He's biting the dust like a serpent. He's there crawling like a snake before the Lord, before the throne of God. And we know what has happened. The Lord has knocked him off his platform. The first stage of making all his enemies his footstool is to begin with their gods. And this serpent, and he does have scaly parts because some think he's a fish god with human parts and scaly fish parts as well. So he's, he is a picture of the serpent biting the dust whose head is soon to be crushed. God has done it to their God. And they ought to know that they ought to prostrate themselves before the Lord. When God takes away our God's we should know it's time to prostrate ourselves before the Lord. But they don't do that. They, they talk and communicate among themselves. They no doubt think, oh, it's a bit of an accident. Maybe there's a bit of an earthquake. Maybe a gust of wind, a freak piece of nature somehow. This has just happened. And so they, they put him back up again. And don't give it much of a thought. Although deep within them, it doesn't look like a good sign. And the fears are beginning. Do they not know that if the Lord can bring down their God, he can bring them even lower than that? They ought to be thinking. Do they not know if God can sink their God to the dust, he can sink them to hell itself? Do they not think this? 
They should be thinking this. But as I said, they think it's all an accident and they kind of cover it up. I don't even think anybody outside the temple knows about it. We can keep this hidden from the people. They don't need to hear about it. So they quickly put them back up again. Doesn't look like anything's happening. So when all the people come in to worship, it all looks the same for that day. Nothing has changed. They still go with their pretense. Dagon is the champion. Dagon is the victor. And so business as usual in the temple. And then whenever the day is all done, back home again, skipping and leaping to a good night's rest. And the next day, we read the next day, verse 4, when they arose early on the morrow morning. This is day 3 now. Behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. So the Lord continues to have them in derision. He makes bare his mighty hand. He not only knocks Dagon down this time, he cuts him to pieces. Now some people have thought he's just broken into pieces. The Lord's given him a harder push and he's broken into pieces. But that's not what the verb says. The verb says he cut. He cut off the hand. He cut off the head. The Lord has used his hands and mutilated their God. So the text is very clear about that. Cut off. A very important word in Samuel. Like Goliath's head. Cut off. Like Saul's skirt. Cut off. Cut off. And now what are the priests going to think? They know this is no accident. They don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out what's happening here. This is not accident. This is not a freak of nature. They know there's only one suspect who has carried it out. The Lord. The God of Israel. Mutilation is quite a common thing in ancient warfare. The victors would often mutilate the bodies of the dead. It's easy to count the dead when you cut off a hand or scalp them or do some other thing bodily part you can count the dead you can pride yourself in your victory and then if you don't kill your enemy you can mutilate them so that they don't engage in the warfare against them ever again cut off the right hand cut off a foot or two perhaps this is what is happening here the Lord has mutilated Dagon cut off his parts and thrown them to the threshold thrown them to the door it's not a case of, you know, he's broken off and all the parts are lying around the stump. No, the stump is there before the Lord, but, but the parts, they're, they're over at the door. Someone's brought them to the door. In fact, maybe they've been cut off at the door. That's what the text seems to imply. They were cut off at the door, at the threshold. What would Sherlock Holmes make of this? You can't hide this. They might super glue them together, but the people are going to come in and say, what's wrong with Dagon? What's that glue sticking his pieces together? You can't hide this from them. Dagon has been mutilated by the God of Israel. He's not a God anymore. Their God has lost face, literally, because he's beheaded. And also, metaphorically, he's lost face. He can't be trusted in the Lord is mightier. The interpretation of it is, 
Either the Lord has cut off Dagon's parts and threw them over to the door. The way the, the Philistines might look at it is that Dagon was trying to crawl out the door. That he didn't want to bow before the Lord and he's, he's crawling out the door. He's making his way out. He's trying to escape the Lord. But the Lord is coming after him and, and cuts off his parts at the threshold. And he lifts the stump up and he puts the stump and he brings it back. There's no escape from the Lord. The Lord pursues all sinners. The Lord pursues the heathen and the idols of the heathen. And the Lord has the victory. And now in verse 5 we read about every other day. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. You see, whenever they come in, Dagon's parts blocked the way and they didn't want to walk on his parts. They don't like to trample their God on their feet, do they? And so they have to skip over the, the parts and begin to think what's happening here and then, then they have to pick the parts up and they super glue them together again, but they never forgot that's where his parts were, that's where his sacred parts lay. And so, ever thereafter, whenever they come in, they have to do a skip. We're skipping that. It looks very funny, doesn't it? This humor, having to skip. They who went skipping out with gladness now have to come skipping in every time in the memory of Dagon's parts lay there. See, God did this. It's so funny, isn't it? You just want to smile and laugh. Every day, the skipping priests of Dago, skipping over the threshold. It's laughable. So God has made Dagon's temple a theater to give us a show, to see the futility of the gods of the heathens, to see the futility of superstition, the folly of idolatry. But you know something? They still don't turn. Three days. They still don't turn. Seven months. The ark has to abide there. God is going to work. And vex the Philistines now. If we don't repent. When the Lord gives us these early tokens. These early providences. These early warnings. Then he'll vex. The sinner. It's good to repent early. They that seek the Lord early shall find him and save themselves from a multitude of troubles. What the sinner brings himself into who rejects Jesus Christ. So God smites Stagon and then his hand goes out to begin to smite the Philistines. In closing, let me say two things that we might draw from this scene. I think, first of all, we most certainly see here a type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's as clear as day, especially in that, that three-day count. The Lord is giving us here a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ, the awakening of our Lord, whereby he destroys Satan, defeats Satan, crushes Satan's head, remember, the serpent is bruised and his head cut off there at the feet of the ark. The third day, he bruised Satan's head. He come forth from the tomb. He destroyed him that had the power of death. And this pictures it. 
In the very house of Dagon itself. In the very house of the devil. In the very house of death. Because Satan had the power of death. And Jesus is in the house of Satan's power. Captive to death. In the humiliation. But he arose. And proceeds to make all his enemies his footstool. Commencing with the crushing of Satan's head. It's all pictured here. That's why the Bible says, according to Scripture, the third day he shall rise. It's everywhere in Scripture. Look for that third day. It's there in type and shadow. This resurrection theme of the resurrection of the servant of the Lord. So Dagon is the scaly serpent-like fish god who is crushed. The other thing, and it's a thing that Augustine and the church fathers would draw from this scene, is that this is the only answer to our heart. To our heart. Because what are our hearts like? They're temples of idols. They are. As Calvin said, our hearts are just idol-producing factories. Producing idols on mass scale, producing idols every day. The human heart runs after idols. And our hearts would store and keep idols. And there's only one answer. That into that heart heart comes Christ, the idol destroyer, the idol breaker, the idol killer, who makes all things bow before him. Christ in us, the only hope of glory. Christ in the heart, Christ in the life, only Christ can break the power of idols and of sin in the temple of the human heart. So, bring him in. Bring him in with willingness and gladness. Bring him in with faith and trust and love. And only then can the idols of our heart be slain and dealt with. So open up the gates of your heart and let the glory of the Lord, the King of glory himself, the Lord of hosts, let him come in. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, let him come in. Be lift up you doors and let him come in. And the King of glory shall come in and cast down all idols before his most wonderful and holy and gracious presence. May it be so. May he come into our hearts.